0: We'd like to thank you, our valued listeners, for your interest and support over the past 18-odd months. What was initially FX Radio has grown exponentially to include not just our podcasts in FX Medicine Podcast Central on iTunes, but we'd like to also introduce the recently launched FX Medicine website. This is our reservoir of resources, research and educational content for complementary medicine. Come and be a part of the community at fxmedicine.com.au. FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. And with me in the studio today is Dr. Mark Donohoe, a GP of great renown, who treats very complex conditions nowadays because his history was looking into patients or, or the symptomatology and the presentation of patients that had things wrong with them that didn't fit into the medical paradigm. So welcome back, Mark. It's good to be complex, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Mark, today we're going to be talking about the opportunities and and the conundre, the conundrums that we can come into uh, when using probiotics, particularly for medically diagnosed conditions. Mm. And you've got a lot of expertise on this, particularly because you have very complex presentation of patients. Yes. Take me through firstly what you use probiotics for, and segment them out as to like a stratification, if you like.
1: I can take you through the simplistic view, which is complex patients typically have seen a lot of practitioners, orthodox medical and complementary, integrative, and I'm at the end of a long line. And typically, they've been through dozens of treatments. Nearly all have been on probiotics of some type or form along the way they've heard of them and they know of the value. When I see people with chronic inflammatory disorders, and I think now it's getting clearer that things like chronic fatigue syndrome involves neuroinflammation, it involves other inflammatory processes of the immune system as well. When I see those, I used to think of how do we control the immune system and think of it Mm. systemically. Now I think of it primarily as how do we get the gut to be involved in the immune modulation? And bluntly, when I am... Clear about what the cause of a person's illness is, I will often go for that specific treatment. But for 90% of the people who see me, the very first thing I do while awaiting the result of the testing that I do is get them on really quite high dose, you know, up in the 400 to 500 to even a trillion units, uh, colony forming units per day, and their Saccharomyces. And I even put them on Mike Ash's old uh, apple, um, Mm. uh, stewed apple, (laughs) which has proven a real boon. I mean, the, the number of people, A, who say, I didn't know I could eat apple and it tastes delicious and I'm feeling better balanced against a couple of people who the, who really needed the uh, FODMAP type approach who felt terrible and got cramping pains and I regret. But the vast, vast majority, that uh, stewed apple has actually been a real boon in getting compliance and getting people interested in cooking and getting their gut back in order. So my typical thing is, if we've got inflammation to control and there's evidence often with standard things like C-reactive protein or the ESR is proven to be raised, mm. or you've got this CD4-CDA ratio, which is high with low suppressor cell numbers, when you use those indications... To me, the gut and probiotics is the number one way of getting a quick outcome in that first month while they're waiting for results, while they're trying to do something good for themselves. It's the quickest and best way to get people say, I never knew that I could feel that good in such a short period of time.
0: Can I ask you a little bit about the, the FODMAP diet and the, you know, the stewed apple, which really doesn't fit into that. I know. Uh, and, and I, you know, I take my hat off to the work of Sue Shepard and others, mm. um, who designed this diet looking at fermentable oligosaccharides, monosaccharides, yep. and, <laughs> and, numbers, and polyols. Right. <laughs> Forgive me.
1: A, I, I still think it's a FODMAP <laughs> is a terrible name. Every time I, I feel like I'm talking about a Muppet or <laughs> <I> something <did. laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah, this is a FODMAP. But, but, but the, you're the, right. We should, we should be aware that many people have found that brilliantly good for managing their for, symptoms.
0: And particularly for irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. That sort of seems to be where it's found its place. However... Um, I have concerns about long-term avoidance of healthy food sure. groups, and I think we should always be looking at why did this happen and what can we do to heal yeah. the
1: issues, so that I don't have to avoid those yeah. healthy foods. A FODMAP diet in many ways is a medical model of there is a the right diet and people should be on the right diet. And there is no such thing as Mm. a right diet. Mm. If you are not able to manage fermentable oligosaccharide type of uh, foods, the deeper question is why you can always put a person on a diet. In fact, you'll remember a well-known hospital around Sydney, the low salicylate diet. People went on basically no vegetables, no good foods for their health and felt great. But the fact is, if you stick anyone on no food who's got a gut problem, they feel great mm-hmm. temporarily, and then they get malnourished. Mm-hmm. And then you are stuck with the problem of how do we restore a healthy diet in this person? My concern about my medical colleagues is that they're very quick to criticize naturopaths for candida diets and you know uh, paleo diets, but they stick them on horrendous diets as far as long-term health and maintenance of health goes. And act as though it's medical, therefore you should follow this as if it were a prescription for the rest of your life. Mm. And that, of course, is not true. The deeper question of why they need to be on that special diet can be answered. And this is what, you know, next year with uh, uh, Dave Pormutter and uh, Alessio Fasano. This is exactly why we all need to be there mm. to hear the deeper reasons. What goes on with the genetics of the person who needs a wide variety of foods right through the early years of life? How to not end up as a FODMAP victim, in a sense, like where you are stuck on a diet which is not good for your health? How to consider grains, genetics, uh, a variety of diets, so that we're not talking about the diet right for everybody. We're talking about individual needs, how they get into a mess and how you rescue them from that mess. And a FODMAP may be a good temporary diet, But there is no way that that's your long-term diet for life. So it's a rescue effect or a rescue uh,
0: mechanism until you can figure out the cause.
1: Which is what medicine is largely about. What are we about? We're about diagnosing and relieving symptoms and getting a result early on. And my own profession's failure, I think, is asking the second question, but why? Why in this person? And to me, the time that I get to spend with people you can always see exactly where these problems arose. Sometimes it's in childhood with uh, acne and antibiotics. And you you can kind of understand then that a child with a six-month course of antibiotics who didn't feel terribly bad at the time but whose health problems and inflammatory problems and behavioral problems started appearing after that time when they stopped their antibiotics missed something vital and that was the restoration of normal flora and normal gut biology. And so I, to me, starting with what diet can make you feel better is one issue. I routinely take people off their gluten. I routinely take people off their milk. And when they say, oh, but I've been off it before, I have to ask, seriously, have you? And uh, no, I I was off it for a week, but I had a bit of pizza during that time, but I never noticed any difference. And in practical terms, I have to say, you need to be really serious as if I was giving you a pill that was going to cure you for the next month. You don't touch it. Mm. And we see what happens over that month. Now, I would estimate that way more than half of my patients come back and say, that is unbelievable. I could never have imagined that a diet plus a probiotic could allow me to feel good for the first time in my life. And so the practical issue is if we can do something that starts to restore the ecology of the gut and restore digestive processes, and it can be done that easily... Being strict about it for one month is an excellent idea so that they get the positive feedback. The other value is, at the end of a month, when a person is feeling good, you say, oh, try gluten again. And horrendous things happen, which really reinforces for them that this was not just me limiting my diet. There are specific gut immunological reactions to gluten that they then are not all that keen to go and replicate over and over.
0: I think one of the things that practitioners have got to be mindful of when they're recommending any elimination diet is that the symptoms of having an offending food, particularly while you're on that um, elimination phase, it may not present immediately. It may oh. present like two, three days afterwards. Yes. So if they say I had a little bit of pizza and it was okay, but then three days later, when I had your diet, I felt bad. Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this is the problem. They say, so the good diet made me feel bad. yeah, but it was from the three days earlier when they well, had that. that remember
1: pizza. there's something even deeper. There's the addiction abdiction response, right that. Why do we eat pizza? Well, there's a bunch of bugs down in the gut there that are really used to getting their hit Mm. of whatever it is you're about to give them. And you make them happy little sausages for a while. They don't complain. When they lack their foods, they go a bit berserk. They're looking for something, and we think we have cravings for pizza or sugar. I'm betting that the majority of the time... That's the bugs that are getting uncomfortable down in the gut. There is a gut feeling that you've got to eat a certain type of food to satisfy them. And this comes back to sugars. It comes back to uh, uh, grains. It comes back to all kinds of things that there is an addiction response, which is very real. A person feels temporarily better on something. And when that food is taken away, the gut bugs give their little messages. They signal the nervous system. Cravings start to occur. And when you give in to those cravings, it's really easy to think that the food is good for you, and it's the not having the food that's bad for you. Mm. And so those first days, I am used to a kind of process where I say to the person, you are got to come off this." About day five, they say, "I've never felt worse in my whole life. How can you possibly say that this is a stick with it? Stick with it, stick with it." And it is remarkable that once the gut is clear, once the microbes start to redistribute themselves and the ecology returns to normal, that's when you start to get a chance for gut healing. And give them a month, give them the SB, uh, the Saccharomyces boulardii, give them a decent dose of the um, normal acidophilus, lactobacilli, and the bifidobacteria. Give them that and allow them just to reconstitute. There's not repaired in a month, but what they do is feel better enough to say, this is something really worthwhile. And I do feel But that actually makes a difference to it. I'll also have to admit that at the end of that month when we see the pathology, you often see things like viral infections and altered function, kidney and liver function, and it's not all to do with the gut. But Mm. the gut is such a quality, good start, simple to do, takes the medicalization out of it and gives them a story. If you have them stewing apples and looking for uh, ancient grains or even grain-free living, It actually gets people working. I I saw a gentleman the other day, I hadn't seen him for two years. He came back and he said, I just wanted to check up. Two years ago you got told me to get on to fermented foods and to look after the gut. Mm. The guy had transformed his life and was back at the gym and putting on weight and doing everything, still hadn't fully recovered, but had got right into the whole process of making his own foods. And what was clear is food had become a center point for the family. They were making living foods. They were fermenting their own. He was experiencing the ups and downs of that. And over a two-year period, he needed no medical care. He never even came back for his results because he felt so good. Mm. So I finally got a chance to re-medicalize him in the way doctors do and say, well, you know, we should just check that you've fixed these. He's fixed them all. Wow. And that is one person without training of any type who just simply got interested and said, I am going to pay attention to Take my charge. gut, to food, to mm. preparation of food. And that's the other remarkable thing. Families who pay attention to food, who do the cooking, who learn about living foods and learn about food cultures, there is a culture to every culture. And learning it and understanding how we manage our gut and re-inoculate it and how living foods play such a big part in our health is, I think, the future of food and medicine. You
0: mentioned the nervous system and we were speaking about the FODMAP diet and that Mm. perfectly leads into irritable bowel syndrome as a medical condition. And one of my issues has been that practitioners try and look for the magic probiotic, the magic organism, Mm. one organism for irritable bowel syndrome. And yet when you look at the data, you've got positive studies on a number of organisms and even combinations of such when you give them, like, for instance, I will mention a brand here, VSL3, yeah. because it's a product that uh, of medical level evidence um, for certain conditions. But Sadly,
1: lost from Australia to America and hard to get. Yeah,
0: <laughs> no, that's right. Very difficult to no, get. Well, yeah, you can't get it in Australia yeah. at the moment. There's, they've come out with a weird sort of copy, but it's not the same. But anyway, um, it, it, you know, it may be down to dose, so you know, whatever. But um, there's VSL three used in irritable bowel. There's, um, you know, lactobacillus rhamnosus GG failed. Mm. Um, Lactobacillus plantarum 299V had some positive effect, but not with all parameters. Same with um, Lab 4 combination yeah. of species and strains that had positive effect on some but not all parameters. And there was also Bifidobacterium infantis 35624. Oh. Um, yeah. And this the is... 35625 <laughs> failed miserably. Yeah, but... Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but that was a good paper because it was Eamon Quigley's group and he does really good writing. The, the lead author of that paper was Horwell, PJ Horwell, and it was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology in 2006. So just if anybody wants to look that one up, but I fail to see why people want one organism to do all
1: jobs. Yeah. Uh, I mean, us doctors, we always like the purified version of something, something with a long number and a patent behind it makes doctors feel comfortable, yeah. all, all the way from cannabis to you know probiotics. There's something about technical numbers that comes from our learning in medical school and reading papers and seeing very specific things done. And I, my reading of the literature now is that the foods play as uh, the prebiotic type of food environment plays an equally, if not greater, importance yeah. than the selection of the bugs. There's a degree of self selection and mass action that's going on in the gut of trillions of organisms changing around in periods as little as seven or eight days. You can get really massive changes of the microflora bal- balances down there. And a lot of that seems to be driven by the glycans in the various foods that Mm. we have, and probably also the fatty acids, and even right down to the amino acids, you know, the conversion of leucine into factors that prevent sarcopenia. There's a lot going on down there of what we feed the bugs. And I get the feeling that we are on the periphery. What we're doing with the microbiome project is we're looking for the magic when the magic is actually on the dinner table, the magic is right before us with people relaxed, eating their food, salivating properly, chewing properly, and they build their own flora based on that extraordinary combination of social cooking and other skills. Still I say, Digby goes out for a walk with me. My little dog knows what to eat. Possum who is is popular when things are going wrong for his gut, and he normalizes himself in a way that I would find disgusting, but... Animals know how to do this. They get a direct gut brain reaction. They respond to it directly. We complicate it with a whole science, which goes down to the sub, 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 subspecies of a species of a genera or of. A, and we think that that is going to be the magic. And I, I really strongly disagree. I think I even strongly disagree. Sometimes there's the kind of prolactic acid versus no lactic acid production. And It may be in theory important, but the bigger issue of getting the diet right and not focusing on the problem of the gut, but restoring normality of the socializing, the eating, the family gathering, the enjoyment of food. If I have one problem with FODMAP and salicylate and other diets is they can turn food into the enemy. Mm. That you actually then have people looking at labels, fearing the very thing that's going into their mouth. And that fear inhibits salivation, inhibits gastric acid production. It does a whole range of things to our digestive system, which are not good for health. We really have to get around that. Intervene with a diet, find out where your risk factors are, achieve certain goals, and then broaden that diet out to the best that that individual, that family, or that social group can manage. I think that's going to be the way of the future.
0: Absolutely. I think if, if our listeners want to tune in to how fermented foods can become part of our active lifestyle there's a great uh, podcast by Dr. Sarah Lance on Bucci kombucha and and what she's done with fermented foods there were some other great ones I can't remember her she's an American lady and she she basically said that she's going in for a colonoscopy and there's certain things five things that she's going to do afterwards to help promote her good bacteria avoidance of certain foods inclusion of others like the fermented foods plus probiotics but I think you you keyed into something that we really do Miss out in our stressful, stressful 21st-century living, and that is preparing ourselves for the meal. Now, I'm not a religious person, but the act of saying grace, if we mm-hmm. wanted to take the religious um, uh, inferences out the act of saying grace just giving thanks for a meal being in a present spot and relaxing into the moment and if you wanted to take it out of that just put a, a you know a white magic around you and just say the the stress of the day will be there when i come back right now i'm going to eat meal
1: mm. <laughs> <laughs> it is difficult right I, and i say this from the perspective of a parent of a teenagers the last one of whom is just oh, yes. finishing <laughs> a high school certificate and in those circumstances Stresses of my work, of my wife's yoga work, of the stresses of exams, of everything, mean that you've got to put the effort in. But integrative medicine is that one area that says that effort is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Giving permission to patients to actually spend time on food, it seems almost like a, an evil luxury. You know, how can I spend the time making food? Well, if you want your health back, that's step one. The stewing of the apples, Michael Ash's idea of the stewing of the apples, the stewed apples gets people back into the kitchen, making a recipe, having food that they love the taste of, and feeling, hey, this is not only okay for my health, this may actually be supporting good health. Yeah. It improves things like salivation. It improves anticipation of a food. It improves the way we sit down to eat a meal together. And it's a discussion point. How? Who ever knew? something as simple as green apple stewed up with a bit of cinnamon and other herbs in there could possibly be so good for your health. People discuss it, tell their friends, other friends take it up, and it spreads metastatically through a community, through a suburb. Neighbours take it up. And building health is an art that we doctors, I think, have almost lost. I think naturopaths still hold it. And I have concerns when naturopaths and complementary practitioners almost want to be disease treating just like doctors. They want to have hard, solid evidence. Whereas I would say 80% of health, maybe even higher, is built from the lifestyle that you live, getting out, biophilia, getting into the outside air, walking, exercising, enjoying and making your own foods. I think the extra step of living foods and fermented foods will become something that's so common to health management and eventually is starting to be delivered by the gastroenterologists, of all people. They are seeing the benefits in the literature and saying, well, how do I translate that? Now, I'll tell you the problem. I, as a doctor, feel embarrassed when I say, what you've got to do is sit down with your family, eat, you take your time, you prepare the meal... And I say, but what's the treatment? So the patient says, yeah, 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 but that's all all the soft stuff. That's all anyone can tell me. To be a doctor and to not run straight to a pill, a potion, a strain of a a probiotic is a really difficult thing (laughs) because people walk away thinking that's just low-grade information. Until they experience it where they realise that the rebuilding of the health, you're handing the ability to look after the health back to them and that's a really valuable long-term thing because it cuts their medical and, and integrative costs. It costs nothing to prepare food well except the time and the effort that you put into it and that's paid back by good health.
0: And I've got to say, in my experience, I've been so impressed when a GP takes the time to go through the basic Even evidence-based parameters, which they should be covering off first before going for a pill, I'm so impressed when they actually take the time to talk about the importance of diet in um, health-related conditions.
1: Yeah, it is. The doctors that I talk to say, oh, my patients expect something that only a doctor can give them. And I don't think that that is actually true. I think where I hear the complaints is the doctor thought I was after a pill. I want to feel well. I want to get my health back. I want to recover. And so that difference is the doctor thinks the expectation is, what's the pill you're going to give? We reach for a script pad or we reach for the name of a, uh, a particular probiotic and we hand that over as though that's a solution without ever changing the environment. We've moved away from the Hippocratic concepts of the environment and the circumstances and the family and the units to the more Roman concept of, we will fix the problem that we see in front of us. Mm. And I, I the balance has got to be right. You do have to fix a sick person. You've got to intervene in a way which has an evidence base to it where you can say, here's the here's the likelihood of a good outcome. But if you don't fix the kind of structure around that, the family, the living, the stresses at work, then we will guarantee that the gut will go off. The gut seems to be far more sensitive to stress than almost any other organ. The, the gut, the brain, and the heart together give really clear signals when things are going wrong and we pay no attention to them. We're all fearing heart attacks, but we don't fear gut attacks. When we put up with irritable bowel syndrome, it's a gut attack. Yeah, It doesn't kill you but it makes life bloody oh. miserable and can, curing other Can gut kill
0: somebody? I've yes, <laughs> seen somebody with multiple hospitalizations. It wasn't a remedial disease at all. Yeah. This lady was multi- hospitalized multiple times for severe dehydration right. from IBS. So, I, you know, I caution practitioners out there, don't, don't, um, don't trivialize irritable bowel syndrome.
1: No. In fact, now the gastroenterologists, so since that paper in gastroenterology, I think it was two years ago or a year and a half ago, which just took irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea and put did the DQ2 and DQ8, did the genetic testing to find out who had the so-called celiac genetics. These were not celiac patients. These were irritable bowel syndrome. And with the gluten-free diet, around about 70 to 80% of the people who responded to the gluten-free diet halved or more than halved their irritable bowel syndrome symptoms by simply coming off gluten, just but, gluten, just not fodmap. Gluten. No, it was not so that's fodmap. That's an interesting thing. This right? was a low gluten mm. diet, mm. and the paper would simply say, "Well, we do know that there's something about the immunological response to gluten and a celiac disease. This is non-celiac disorder." Mm which we regard as a functional disorder. When doctors use the word functional, it may mean all in your mind, you know, not really real. Um, but here was a really real thing that could be done. In a blinded trial, take people off their gluten versus those who didn't come off their gluten and look at the outcomes. Now, these were severe IBS patients, and it was not cure that was going on. It was relief of symptoms and a dramatic reduction in symptoms in those who came off the gluten component versus those that didn't. So we still have a lot to learn, and you know this is where I think Fasano and Perlmutter next year are really going to be critical to making these distinctions. The broad brushstroke is take everyone off gluten. A lot of people get better. The doctors say, but that's not celiac disease. And the only thing gluten does is celiac disease. No. Thyroiditis for women in their 30s. Way more than half of the women that I see with thyroiditis carry the celiac genes and the thyroid antibodies drop with two things, adding selenium and getting them off gluten. And you can watch the antibodies drop exceptionally reliably with just those two tricks for the thyroiditis. I have some sympathy with the with the guys who believe, well, it's DQ2 or 8, but there's something else about thyroiditis. And so one view is there's got to be a Yersinia bug because there's mimicry between that and the thyroid, and that's why we attack it. And that picture is yet to be worked out. Do you need a a genetic susceptibility plus a grain plus a pathogen? And why doesn't everybody with those celiac genetics go on to develop these problems? That's the fascinating area. If we know the susceptibilities, why challenge that? Why pick a fight that is unnecessary with a prolamine, which is the component of gluten that the immune system just seems to get annoyed by?
0: I haven't looked at it yet, but I I just saw a link last night. And I I hope this is correct for our listeners, but I think it's gastroenterology and hepatology, 2015, October. And there's a link that's talking, I think the whole issue is dedicated to non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So it'll be very interesting to see the articles that are coming out now. And certainly it will be really interesting to see uh, you know, the whole array of speakers that we have at the 2016 symposium, Bicyclical Symposium, mm. but in particular, Dr. Alessio Fasano, who is the discoverer of zonulin. Yes. I mean, that's going to be really interesting to hear him talk.
1: Yes. And I, I think he, not single-handedly... But he has done the majority of work in saying, here's the genes, here's the immunology, here's the uh, reactions, here's the gastroenterological separation of the cells. It's been wonderful over the years just watching him put the jigsaw puzzle pieces together mm. and now watching the gastroenterological specialty moving along in that direction, saying, aha, that answers a lot of things. Yeah that we did not understand before. Now, like everything, a pendulum will swing too far. Once the gastroenterologists get it, everyone will be gluten-free. And then they'll say, no, it didn't work. See, in 100% of the population, you can't get that. But what I think we can do is always pay attention to the family history. Who in the family either has celiac disease or thyroiditis? The best question to ask to find out if someone is gluten-reactive is mother grandmother, aunts, how many of them had thyroiditis or had thyroid disease? And you get this answer of how would you know that my mother and Mm -hmm. grandmother Mm -hmm. and everyone had thyroid disease? Well, because these genetics predispose women way more than men to getting a thyroiditis where they go through uh, their 20s, hyperactive a bit, and then they enter their 30s and the thyroid is now malfunctioning, high thyroid antibodies, inflammation, and now doctors focus on treating the thyroid instead of treating the gut and get back to the gut, and you watch the thyroid antibodies drop, and thyroiditis is an eminently treatable Mm. disorder. Mm. Women now restore their thyroids by going through the diet and the probiotics, managing the thyroid, and they don't have them burned out. They don't have them damaged. They don't have them removed. They get back to functional thyroids about three to four years later.
0: I, I had a book um, and it was by Tima Publishers, T-H-I-E-M-E, and it was on thyroid disease, and it was looking at the issue of tolerance, mm. and yet they totally missed the, the, in, the input or the interplay with the gut. They, yeah. t- they talk, spoke about tolerance, but only from an immune cell um, perspective, not how that immune cell was recruited in the gut. It was yes. really interesting. They missed the, missed the game. Just moving on there to a condition which affects many Australians, certainly with our modern day lifestyle, uh, but also is an infectious agent. I think it's a group one um, agent for carcinogenicity, and it affects, it's purported to affect around 50% of the world's population at least sometime in their lives, and that telecobacter pylori, which is said to cause, uh, be causative in about 95% of gastric ulcers, duodenal ulcers. So, and this was obviously the, uh, the discovery by um, Professor Barry Marshall and, and Robin Warren over in Western Australia. Um, so helicobacter pylori as a medical disease has been fraught with problems mm. ever since the triple therapy was devised by Professor um, Tom Barody. Um, And that is that you get poor compliance because of side effects. Yes. Talk to me about what happens in your clinic with the triple therapy and how you circumvent those side effects so that you get better
1: results All for right your man. patients. I'm still going to be a heretic here. Right, there is a move back away from Helicobacter as that cause in the medical community. The medica- what the was ulcer. demonstrated is that researchers in Western Australia who swallow capsules full or liquid full of Helicobacter can in fact induce ulcers, which well, they, is true.
0: Um, Barry Marshall got gastritis, not gastritis, an ulcer. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah.
1: but the the fact that there is inflammation is true, uh, and I think there's some interesting research that says. Helicobacter is an agent which, in the right circumstances, becomes pathogenic and inflammatory, but which can also exist in non-inflammatory states and may even be a probiotic which has beneficial yes, effects with hunger. With yes, satiety. And so there may be a part to play every time we define a something as a pathogen, it's like defining something as a weed a weed. yes. yes. if you define a weed and St. John's Ward is a weed, What's St. John's warts use. It can be a poison or it can be a therapeutic effect. I take helicobacter patients and I have discussions with gastroenterologists. Oh, we can cure 95% with a single course of the triple therapy. And then I have these patients who comes back over and over and the helicobacter is there because the person is unwell. It becomes like most bugs, a different bug when things are wrong. Yeah. So people who have hypochlorhydria or hyperchlorhydria, people who are not eating well, the helicobacter has a whole different life cycle where inflammation is occurring. Because of its survival ability, it's able Mm. to stay there for long times Anything which is an irritant on a mucosal surface will cause cancer eventually. It will cause ulceration earlier. So a mutagen plus a mitogen, anything in the gut can be mutagenic because we have nitrosamines, we have all kinds of chemicals come through in our food. It's a highly reactive environment, lots of hydrochloric acid, and you get really dangerous molecules around there that requires an excellent mucosal protection. It requires a very deep uh, ability to control this explosion of acids and nitrites and everything else and when it breaks down through diet or lifestyle the bugs are always there and now become pathogenic in that area of the gut so i do think that there's a place for triple therapy in a person who has developed a helicobacter infection where you want quick control you're right about the 7 day course of treatment giving a lot of adverse effects. And if the goal is, we just want to get this better, we've got to get the ulcer out of the way, I think that there's a value to doing, it in, to doing the seven-day treatment as a first line of treatment in the medical treatment. But I think there's a way bigger issue of maintaining gut ecology in the upper gastrointestinal tract, determining if a person has low or high hydro- hydrochloric acid as their baseline. If so, why? And I think that we also need to respect that the gastrointestinal tract, even the stomach, needs to be respected as a place where you do the second stage of digestion, saliva in the mouth and chewing. The next stage is you've got to have your acid, you've got to have your mucosal protection and reestablishing mucosal protection on the stomach wall is a different business to reestablishing it on, say, the ileum or the Mm. jejunum Mm. or anywhere like that. Mm. So I think Our simplistic view of there's a bug, there's the ulcers, it must be cause and effect, ignores the fact that the bug is there and becomes pathogenic for a reason and is non-pathogenic in a huge number of people. If you do the helicobacter serology and the breath test, you find many asymptomatic people who also have breath test positive and serology positive. Are they at war with it? Well, not symptomatically. Do you treat it? We actually don't know. Mm. What we do know is if you've got gastritis and you've got ulceration, you have a short-term medical problem that you have to stop progressing. And there is value to the antibiotics in those circumstances. Do you leave it there? Not at all. Because the relapsing rate for those people, the bug will return. Mm,
0: It will return anyway. It's very hard to eradicate.
1: Yeah. And you have to be at peace with that bug. You need to develop a relationship with your helicobacter where it goes back to whatever its mysterious role may be. It reminds me a lot of, you know, do we introduce parasites into people yes. for control of other inflammatory disorders? Do you treat celiac with, you know, parasites? Yeah. Do you treat allergy with parasites? So the, there's a lot of stuff going on on the gut wall. And helicobacter sits as a headline because doctors thought, oh, we always thought it was stress and hospitalization. And old Doug Piper over at North Shore was one of my teachers. And it was all people in hospital for seven days. and They get better from their ulcers. That all got wiped out by the Helicobacter story. And as I said before, the pendulum swing goes so far that you think that the bug is the only reason for ulcers or for gastritis. Swings back the other way. And we'll have to find our middle ground there where peace with Helicobacter is what we're after. We are not after a war that we can never win.
0: Yeah, and I I might point out for our listeners that the big problem with triple therapy and the subsequent quadruple therapy, if they need it, is compliance, because people feel so rotten on that therapy that they very often stop. I think it was somewhere around 30% of people actually don't finish the therapy. Therefore, that therapy can't have the beneficial effects on, a, on uh, eradicating, quote, unquote, helicobacter pylori. You'll never eradicate it. Mm. Um, and therefore, it, the condition persists. Um, there's, there's good evidence to show that um, Saccharomyces boulardii, lactoferrin and something that's just now available on the Australian market, that's zinc carnosine, a combination of zinc and L-carnosine together, um, they have evidence on reducing the symptoms of triple therapy so that people can stay on the triple therapy to its entirety and therefore get the beneficial effect of the eradication of the organism. So it's a really interesting thing. The the zinc carnosine actually has some very interesting attributes as well, but that actively heals the ulcer. The the zinc basically gets absorbed into the inflamed tissue, allowing the carnosine to heal, to stay in the localized area and heal the, the inflamed tissue. So it's really interesting what's happening. I think the lesson is... To be able to give something to patients whereby they can add it to their medical therapy and get a better effect. Indeed, what doctors should be investigating this so sure. that they get better results in their patients. Yeah.
1: Get in, get out, do the job that you want to do and make sure that the person is minimally adversely affected by that intervention. That's yeah. exactly what, you know, pinpointing your target, winning the battle and getting out and getting on with maintaining health and gastrointestinal health. Those are great goals. So anything that can be done, this a, this gets back to that idea that there's plenty of nutraceuticals that, if administered with drug therapy, absolutely diminish the symptoms mm. and allow the drug therapy to work better. Which is why every doctor should be integrative, because it improves orthodox medical care. Yeah, not this is not weird. This is simply, we know things. We know stuff with you know, micronutrient loss, with um, antihypertensives, with anything that you treat the gut with, there are costs to it. And if we are able to uh, kind of ameliorate the costs and the difficulties that the person goes through, compliance goes up. If compliance goes up, you win your battle quicker.
0: Mm, absolutely. Indeed, uh, you know, I'd like to say I don't understand why. Um, you know, doctors are so adverse to integrative therapies automatically. But in fact, I do understand it because I was one of them. <laughs> like, yeah. a, not, not one of them, but I, as a registered nurse, I was that medically aligned model. Mm. I was so medically aligned that I used to denigrate um, and relegate any natural therapy but, that would have been proposed to me regardless of the evidence. And mm. all I would implore... Um, orthodox GPs is to just look at the evidence and then heal your patients (laughs) and think of your patients.
1: And remember, we doctors like quick results. You know, intervention, the Roman model is rubor, dolor, calor tumor, that if you can see something, hold it, you can see the pathology and you can aim your rocket at it. It's a very impressive profession to see that rocket hit its target. Is that the end of the story? No. It's the beginning of a story where you've rescued a person from an edge. What do you do as act two? And act two is increasingly being taken up by the integrative doctors, whereas orthodox doctors should know this information. How do you get the person not just back from the edge, but restore health, put the gate up, make sure they're not falling over again? Weirdly, the medical model is if they fall over again, I can treat them next time. I can treat them next time. And so... I think that there's a business model to medicine which says there's no downside to not preventing in the future. In fact, that's the business of medicine is to keep that rescue going. That's the old metaphor of we put ambulances at the base of the cliff. (laughs) I love this one. (laughs) We don't build the fences at the top. And the fences at the top are what we're talking about today. Yeah. The gut is one of those walls that people fall through very, very swiftly. Mm. And they keep landing with thyroiditis, autoimmune, inflamed joints. They end up with migraine headaches. There's a whole plethora of medical disease states that come from a common background of causes. I have a battle at the moment, and I know this from the... uh, from the gastroenterologist. If a person says they have a leaky gut, never believe them because that's a <laughs> naturopath that said it. If they say I've got increased gastrointestinal permeability, that's a medical diagnosis. <laughs> when you have lay terms for something, doctors get their, you know, the hairs thin yeah. up on the back of our neck and, I'm the one who decides if you have that. Um, but we've got to be willing to let that go. Better educated people come along and they've heard about leaky gut and they have heard about, you know, celiac genetics and a better educated population needs doctors to go that extra step to say, I understand that. And I will work with you on that. Let's fix the medical problems. Now let's get on with the job of restoring your health and the other group, your family's health, because things that are genetically susceptible, like celiac genetics. The number of doctors who find them in the adult, and never mentioned that the kids are going to probably Mm. have some of that. Mm. And have you wondered why your child may have autism, spectrum disorder, hyperactivity? Why not think that there's a possible uh, changeover that we need to think about the broader family and how it affects children, grandchildren, and even parents. So this is one where the target patient appears, you identify the problem. You make sense of the generation before and you give the opportunity for the next generation to not run into those problems.
0: That's actually a very salient point because helicobacter pylori is transmitted vertically, yes. i.e. mother to child. So that's where the vector, if you like, is. Mm. Um, uh, it's not gotten from some infectious agent you know, that you yes. came in contact with on a no cruise No one coughed or something. on you. No one coughed on you. It was yours. Um, we just gave it the right environment for it to proliferate. Yeah. So if that doesn't change... You're going to get it again. Yeah. Um, Mark, let's move on to something that, that um, you know, we're talking about the serious gastrointestinal inflammatory disorders now, right? The, the inflammatory bowel disorders, the ulcerative colitis, the Crohn's, the medical use of probiotics, and indeed something that's... It, You know, I would say it's cutting edge, but it's it's really starting to be a groundswell here, and that's the the application of fecal transplantation, which is to me is something so exciting. Talk to me about the application of firstly probiotics and diet and and what happens in the treatment of these patients with anything from a an aspirin derivative to chemotherapeutic agents, Mm. to Fecal transplantation.
1: I have experience of both. Um, the fecal transplantation is not the most popular thing in the world, but it is gaining a reputation, which is getting people around the yuck factor. Mm. And the idea that we may have oral agents we are effectively swallowing, I won't even use the word, but that disgusts some people. Yet at its core, this is Digby eating possum poo. Yeah. They're yeah. getting bugs in is more art than science right at the moment. What we do know is that we can intervene in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis reasonably easily. With sufficiently high-dose probiotics, with saccharomyces, we can do things on the gut wall that make a difference. There is even some evidence of things like glucosamine and the ability to put in the glycans so that these bugs have an opportunity for inflammation control at the site on the gut and more broadly throughout the body. I think of these inflammatory disorders in a way that's very different from a gastroenterologist. They see it as let's use something which heals the lesion and minimizes the damage, which is not a bad goal, Mm. but sometimes it's at odds with getting good gastrointestinal function back. When you have drugs that break up into a steroid and an antibiotic and you're getting that dual effect, it's hard to imagine the gastrointestinal tract maintaining a reasonable balance, even though the symptoms of the disease are increased. And I know that there are controversies arising and the evidence for Crohn's is a little bit weaker than it is for ulcerative colitis. But I think even the orthodox gastroenterological specialist area of medicine is moving into the probiotic era for the management of both of those conditions. The review recently of evidence for ulcerative colitis management is pretty strong. That we, and the fact that there's a microbiome project looking at could we strengthen that even more? Could we refine what, we, what we're offering here? But at its simplest level, the saccharomyces and the high-dose uh, probiotics, the high-dose lactobacillus and bifidobacteria are reasonably straightforward ways of trying to make a difference to re-inoculation of the gut. The dietary approaches, I think, are also important. And I know the gastroenterologists often bristle with this. You know, don't put my patient on diets. I've got them nicely controlled with the drug therapy The question to the gastroenterologist should always be, what's the long-term goal here? What are we trying to establish? Trying to establish normal immunology in an area of inflamed gut is not easy. So symptomatic treatment with the drugs that are used is a very valuable step. One, restoration of gut flora, microbiology, and gut immunology is, in fact, you remember from our last symposium, it is an enormously difficult task that requires a lot more research to be sure of. My experience, though, with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis Hmm. is that they are both recoverable conditions if we don't rely simply on symptomatic treatment. That the combination of diet and probiotics works slowly, progressively. You see the C-reactive protein numbers come down, the ESR numbers. They're just general markers of is inflammation going on down there. The carcinoembryonic antigen is another marker. So as doctors... We can watch what our interventions do as long as we're prepared to have a look over a period of, say, a month to two months to six months. There's really straightforward ways of saying, how is that gut doing? And when you see the embryonic antigen, the CEA numbers dropping down progressively and the C-reactive protein dropping and the person complaining of less symptoms, it's a very, very powerful process. They, they are encouraged to go back and look at what they can control in their own diet. The relaxation is important and getting... Congruent with gut and living foods, Mm. I think that that's where most of them need to actually end up.
0: I had a young lady, I have a young lady who I'm treating who has Crohn's disease, and the antecedent for that was severe and emotional upset at a period of time in her life, a a young 20 something. um, And she also embarked on a high dose oral contraceptive pill. And um, the interesting thing was, as well as you know, rather aggressive medical therapy at the time, Uh, one of the biggest changes that she found was coming off the high dose onto a low dose or a contraceptive pill. So it may be something as seemingly distant as changing the hormonal profile,
1: which has effects on inflammation in there. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and look, I've said this many times, a century ago, the whole thing was control of infection. Now it's control of inflammation. The better we do with inflammation control, the better we do with the chronic, degenerative, grumbling, low-grade diseases. We're good in medicine at stopping the acute exacerbations. What we lack is a strategy that is a lifelong strategy which allows the person to regain their health. And we think of, you know, extend the medical treatment lifelong. It doesn't work out very well. That just distorts more and more of the gut immunology and other problems arise over time. So I... It's a difficult area. Ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, celiac disease, as well, mm. they're owned by the gastroenterologists. So the gastroenterologists have to be the ones to come around because they are potentially serious disorders. Crohn's disease almost universally has the problem of low vitamin B12. And so that last part of the small intestine is mm. critical mm. to absorption of B12. And the number of times we forget that the Crohn's person, even though symptomatically controlled, is just Destroying their ability to absorb B twelve in the distal
0: ileum. Indeed, not just B twelve, but all of the fat soluble vitamins as well. Yeah. So you know, the, for instance, uh, I mean, vitamin D, yeah. it, you know, was the hero for everything. And and some of the trials, the the um, intervention trials, haven't been as uh, as um, shiny as as results that we'd like. But autoimmune disease, man, yeah. <laughs> there's a real use for vitamin D there.
1: Yeah, and that that link between gut and autoimmunity, very, very, very strong link. Absolutely. But nearly all of this of the really useful research is going on to what do you do on the gut to manage the general immune response, though it's not trivial. I, I remember many years ago, a very well known professor and I sat down in a room and he said, Mark, your problem is you think the gastrointestinal tract and the immune system are linked. This is why what? we have specialties, <laughs> there's nothing about immunology in the gut, and there's nothing about gut in immunology. Wow. It's just where the cells happen to be. And I think now that that position will be regarded as absurd. yeah. But if you manage the gut, the immunology, this whole process of autoimmune thyroid disease, autoimmune ovarian disease, lots of infertility, things not obviously related to the gut are intimately related to the gut. And management of inflammation via the gut is a vastly important area of my profession's approach to inflammation. We're always looking for the next drug that will have no side effects but control inflammation it sits in front of us and it's called diet and it's called the Mm. gastrointestinal microbiome and they do a fabulous job if we support them. It's not drug intervention as such, but the drug intervention is useful only for the initial stages.
0: So, Mark, we've spoken about gut conditions anywhere from helicobacter, irritable bowel, right through to the really severe ones, the ulcerative colitis, the inflammatory bowel diseases. Can you give our listeners a wrap-up as to when to use probiotics, And what other factors you use, what other things you use in combination with them
1: to get better efficacy? I would like to start with something that I failed to mention, which is get sugar Mm -hmm. out of the diet. Ah. I mean, in all of these areas, our reliance on sugars, our obsession with going low fat and jumping up all the sugars, those disaccharides, monosaccharides have made a huge difference to the dominant organisms of our gut. Breaking sugar addiction is a critical part of getting a person on the road back to good gastrointestinal health. Whether we're talking, you see ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, or irritable bowel, it's equally important at all fronts. And people resist it. And it's really hard with teenagers, and it's really hard with people who've become so used to sugar that they can't imagine a diet without it. So sugar out, a trial of getting people off their grains, principally wheat, rye and barley for the gluten components of those grains, is always a really good start. And my approach to any of these disorders of chronic inflammation, especially gastrointestinal symptomatology, is it's always worth a trial off gluten, off sugars, off milk products. Watch the first month like a hawk, and find out what the gains and the losses are. So to me, that early intervention is start that process. If I can get people interested in looking at living foods and fermented foods, I encourage them along those lines as well. They will try them out and they'll adopt them themselves. But primarily, it's getting people interested in cooking, sitting down with the family, eating and turning food back into that pleasurable experience that we want. Sometimes my job is to break the diets that others have said, you must stay on for the rest of your life. You must be Mm. on an anti-candidate diet. You must be on this. No one has to be on one diet all their lives because we are adapted to fresh foods in season. We ate what we got. There's a value to a starvation bit of winter, which we never have. We go for more food in winter rather than less. And there's a value to the fruits and vegetables in season. There's no right diet for everybody, nor even for an individual over time. So that's the groundwork to me. When I've got a specific target, my choice is generally the high-dose probiotics of the lactobacilli and the bifidobacteria groups and a reasonable dose of Saccharomyces boulardii. If they're on antibiotics, the probiotics are difficult because they will be murdered by them and you have to separate them, you know, do the 12 hours, but many antibiotics are four times a day, so Mm. it's really hard, and the rule there is leave the probiotics till the end, keep the saccharomyces going because they can moderate that gut immunology and the interleukins there, and then get on to the heavy dose of probiotics immediately after. I'd also draw a distinction. There are people who need short-term antibiotics who need short-term probiotics to re-establish things afterwards. But for people who've been on six months of antibiotics for chronic cystitis, urethritis, uh, acne, lots of those things, After six months of antibiotics, it's no longer a two, three, four-week treatment. Mm. You have to work hard with all of these tools at your disposal. Antibiotics have value, but the cost of them long-term. People experience the upside when they take them short-term. And then they experienced the long-term adverse effects for 25 years afterwards. So that work and going back in the history and saying, did you have long-term antibiotic use? And recognising that as a risk factor for gastrointestinal disease and inflammatory diseases is critical. So those are, those are, to me, the goals. You've taught me something new today um, with the management of helicobacter treatment. So... I did not know that we could ameliorate those symptoms. I've always run into the patients who have severe symptomatology from the attempt of treatment, failed treatment time after time, and so that idea of the zinc carnosine and the saccharomyces, and what's the third component? Lactoferrin. The lactoferrin. Mm. So knowing all about those individually, that's a sounds to me a very good combination for effective initial treatment, minimise the symptoms, and then restore gastrointestinal function and pay attention to stomach acidity, uh, for or against.
0: One of the the problems that patients have is that you you know you've now told me to get off sugar. Mm. Well, what do I do? How, you know, I've got this craving for sugar. How mm. do I manage that? And I think practitioners can learn something from you know if you wanted to say paleo, do that. But the problem with Saying paleo is people think automatically high meat. Yes. Whereas Lauren Cordain and Pete Evans actually made a paleo diet for our 2013 yes. uh, symposium, and it was mainly vegetable matter. It was. Um, and it so, was fantastic. And it was fantastic, but the, the trick is that you replace sugar with good fats. Mm. And, you know, you can get them from a number of sources. They don't have to be animal. You can get them from good yeah. plant sources. Um, and, but that's the way that you ameliorate that, that up and down, the sugar craving. The other thing is um, the use of MCTs, medium-chain yes. triglycerides.
1: They're, they're useful. And you remember, I mean, the sugar industry thrived on the low-fat mm. concept. Mm. What did you replace fats with? You replaced it with sugars and yeah. people couldn't tell the difference. So finding now fat was evil Now we're far, far more subtle about that. There are good fats, there are therapeutic fats, there are uh, caloric fats. And being wise in the choice of the fats that we consume is now a very, very big thing. Do we do that for our diet 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks? No. You do not need high fat diets. Mm. There is beautiful fruit that can be in season and you can go for those sugars. Depending on how you go with fructose generally, I tend to get people off fruit juices as Mm. well. That typical problem of if fruit is good for you, well, 12 of them in a (laughs) juice that I can sauce down before I go to work (laughs) must be even better. And that is not food. That Mm. is not something that we evolved to be able to take. But eating fresh fruit in season is one of those joys that makes eating worthwhile. But interestingly, on
0: this, Crohn's patient that I'm treating if you gave her uh, like she can handle a, uh, a ripe soft banana a ripe banana half of a banana uh, she can't handle apples
1: yeah.
0: but berries are fine however um, she finds for a call it a sweet treat it's not really but she juices vegetables mm. and she actually gets the taste right by having some vegetables um, not too much sugar but a little bit of that that you know call it a sweetness yeah. if you like
1: you can add you know, at the biochemical level and the energy level, you can add the medium chain triglycerides. Mm To give that little bit of a boost that people feel improved and their mitochondria function yeah. at a higher level. Yeah. And so they get the benefits that they've always associated with sugars yeah. through a better metabolic process yeah. or a more diverse metabolic process that does not have you know the glycosylation end products that the sugars are going to have. Yeah. And it does not feed the gut bugs that we are trying to keep under some control to minimize inflammation.
0: And it's actually a nice oil to take. You can, ma- you can make it into a salad dressing. Mm. So it's actually something you can really really easily incorporate this yeah. um, MCT oil. It's, it's
1: People, when you hear, when I tell them about it, they say, oh, that'd be disgusting, having no. oil. It's not no, at all. No, Medium-chain triglycerides are not slabs of fat that you push down. To the <laughs> slabs of lard.
0: <laughs> and on that note, yes. <laughs> Dr. Mark Donohoe, I, thank you so much once again. Uh, you know, your patients must love you because you, obviously, by the time they get to see you, they've been through the ringer. So they're the people who are unwell and chronically so. But I love the, t- the way that you take time to go into, not just the symptoms that are presenting, the little box of symptoms, but the antecedents, the whys and wherefores, how did you get here? And that is probably why these people seek you out um, to get long-term treatment option so um, you know I really applaud you as I always do but I really do applaud you for what you give back to the community
1: nice of you to say so but I think a lot of it is if you listen to the person's story they tell you the reason that they're sick they even often have the answer that no one's listened to and so time for a practitioner is the critical factor to complex issues like gut disorders there's always a reason And sometimes it's in the family history, sometimes it's in the dietary history, sometimes it's elsewhere. But if you listen, I'm amazed at how often people intuitively know where the problem arises and will tell you the answer. It's just a a beautiful part of medicine that if you listen, you will learn and they tell you what you are going to tell them right back.
0: This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.